Acts chapter 9 and verse 6. Scripture records the Apostle Paul asking the following question. Lord, what do you want me to do? Even apostles of Jesus needed salvation. How did they get it? There are two important questions that followed the Apostle Paul's initial conversion experience with God. The first was, who are you, Lord? The second was, Lord, what do you want me to do? The first answer to Paul's question was quick and straightforward. I am Jesus. And no further identification was needed. The good news about Jesus Christ had already reached the ears of every Israelite man, woman, and child throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. The second answer to Paul's question, however, required a deeper sense of contemplation and understanding. And so for the next three days, Paul, who was also called Saul, would spend his time praying and waiting to be told what the Lord would have him to do. While man's encounter with God may not be so dramatic today as it was with the Apostle Paul. The underlying principles remain the same. At some point, like Paul, everyone has an encounter with God. And often it happens through parents' influence. Other times it happens in great tragedy. Sometimes it happens in the private chambers of one's own contemplative mind as he is looking over a mountaintop, perhaps, and realizes the power and the handiwork of an intelligent creator. But what about that second question? Do we, like Paul, go into the city of Damascus and wait on the Lord to be told what we must do? Well, that would certainly make Damascus a hotbed for tourism today, wouldn't it? The answer, of course, is no. But we, like Paul, must also pray. Wait on the Lord. Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Jesus truly directs our minds to scripture, asking the question so often, have you not read? And Jesus tells us to be careful listeners today. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. If we hear, if we listen, if we direct our minds to the written word of God, the answer will not be afar off in the distance. And we, like Paul, may not even need but a few minutes to discern the will of God. Scripture says that when the Lord's messenger came to him, he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. Acts chapter 9, verse 18. For an apostle of Jesus to be saved, he needed to be baptized. Now, someone today will ask, must I be baptized in order to be saved? I want you to notice again those two simple questions that were asked by Paul. Who are you, Lord, and what do you want me to do? Do you notice anything missing? There is a third question that does not appear. Do you know what it is? The question in absence, or perhaps in no absence at all, is, must I be baptized? In fact, this question doesn't appear anywhere in Scripture, and yet it appears today in the mouths of men, doesn't it? 
Why is that? Why is this question so popular among men and women today? It never appears in the inspired Word of God, and yet it does appear over and over again in the curious minds of 21st century seekers. Well, let's hold the answer to that question for a moment and return to it before the close of our thoughts. In the meantime, I want us to look at what the Word of God has to say about the purpose the power, and the plan of baptism. Now, the Bible is very clear about the purpose, the objective of baptism. It is for the forgiveness of sins, Acts 2, verse 38. Paul himself is actually going to expound a little more on his conversion experience during a trip he made to Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 22, Paul informs his Jewish audience about his former life as a persecutor of Christianity. But then he also describes his encounter with the Lord Jesus himself. He tells of how the Lord spoke to him and told him to go into Damascus to wait for further instructions. He tells of how the Lord's messenger came to him and restored his sight. But then Paul reveals an in-between moment that is not found in Acts 9, verse 18. In the first account, we are only told that he had received his sight, arose, and was baptized, as we read previously. But in the second account, this latter account here in Acts chapter 22, we are supplemented with a few finer details. Take ear now to Paul's words immediately following his restored vision, this in-between moment in Acts 22, verses 13 through 16. The Bible says, and at that same hour, this is Paul speaking now personally, he says, I looked up at him, that is the Lord's messenger. Then he said, the God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. This is what the messenger said to Paul. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. There are few other places in Scripture that are so clear regarding the purpose of baptism. The Lord's messenger said it himself. To Paul, arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. The purpose of baptism is washing away sin, the forgiveness or remission of sin, Acts 2, verse 38. Sin has a long history of being seen as a filth and uncleanness to man's soul. Even as old as the Mosaic system of sacrifice, the holy and the unholy, the clean and the unclean, it was all seen as really one and the same. Reference Leviticus chapter 10, verse 10. The demons themselves were described as unclean spirits that often possessed the bodies of men and caused them to do terrible and atrocious things. The Apostle Peter once spoke of the lust of uncleanness, 2 Peter 2 and verse 10. Spiritual filth 
of sin was always the true heart of national and ceremonial uncleanness in Israel. So it should come of no surprise to us then that purification, washing, cleansing was still in order under the new covenant age. The apostle Paul was a persecutor, a transgressor, a blasphemer, and according to his own lips, a chief of sinners under this new law of Jesus Christ, 2 Timothy 1.10. Paul needed to be baptized to wash away the filth, the sins of his soul. This was the purpose and is the purpose of baptism. But lest there be any misunderstanding, we also need to take a few moments to comment on the power of baptism. Because notice again what Paul says in his conversion rehashing experience. Be baptized, yes, and wash away your sins, yes. But the messenger also says to him, calling on the name of the Lord. It really makes no difference which version of the English Bible you may use and the exact arrangement in which you may place these three phrases. The fact of the matter is this calling on the name of the Lord is in what grammarians like to call participle form, which is a word that comes from a Latin word to share. You see, the calling shares as a participle, it shares in the same act as being baptized and washing away your sins. We might say, calling on the name of the Lord, be baptized and wash, or we might say, be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. The arrangement of the phrases really is not of great importance because the calling already shares in this baptism and this washing away of sins. Why is the calling important to point out? in relationship to baptism's power. Why am I taking note of this phrase in reference to power, the power of baptism? It is because the calling is a reminder that the power to save is of heaven and not of earth. That is what this calling, which shares in the act of baptism and washing away of sins, is pointing us unto. It is pointing us unto The Lord, it is pointing us unto heaven and not of earth. Psalm 118, verse 5, the psalmist said, I called on the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me. Lamentations 357, you drew near, the writer says, when I called on you and you said, do not fear. Acts chapter 22, Acts chapter 2 and verse 21 says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Notice that the power to save, the calling, is not of man, but is of the Lord. The power to save is not of earth, nor is it of the elements of the earth. The power to save is of God and of God alone. Just like Stephen, we are calling on God to receive us, to receive our spirits through baptism. Take note again of Acts chapter 6 and verse 59. The Lord's messenger was not telling Paul to suddenly put his trust in the power of earthly elements or rituals. The Lord's messenger was telling Paul to 
worship Jesus, to put all his trust in him, to call upon him, to be baptized ultimately in his name, his charge, his power to save. And this is where the true power of baptism lies. And so we have in note here the purpose of baptism to wash away sins, the power of baptism, calling on the name of the Lord. But then also, finally, we might ask this important question. What about the plan of baptism? You know, many want to know, why is it part of God's salvation design? Why is it so important that God should make it the first thing that Paul actually has to do before he even drinks or eats after fasting three days? I don't think any man can fully understand the wisdom of God's, quote, scheme of redemption. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out, the scriptures tell us. Maybe you've heard the story of Naaman, commander of the Syrian army long ago. He was a leper who sought the cleansing powers of the nation of Israel, but when he heard God's plan, go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and realized that the prophet of Israel wasn't even going to come out to meet him, the Bible says he became furious. Surely, he said, he will come out to me, that is the prophet, stand and call on the name of the Lord his gods. Notice, call on the name of the Lord, the power again, and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. This is what Naaman said to himself. Even the waters were an offense to Naaman. Isn't that interesting, by the way? The waters themselves were an offense to Naaman because not even one of the rivers of Israel could compare to all the rivers in Damascus, according to Naaman. But as we know the story, eventually the commander humbled himself to the command of the prophet and he was healed. Such an interesting story. And I think it's quite uh, apparent to see the fittingness that this uh, story has to the New Testament's teaching on baptism today. If not, it is quite apparent that it was even intended and put there for that very purpose. It is truly hard to say at the end of the day, but it could be even as simple as this in regards to the plan of baptism, that the Lord humbles us in simple obedience to be immersed in water for the forgiveness of sins. You know, who could imagine that the beginning of our salvation should begin in the humble origins of a watery bath? In some regards, it even points us, if you think about it, to our birth itself, which uh, Jesus will later compare to in John chapter 3, where we are told to be born again with water. Who could imagine that even the Savior himself would have his own beginnings on earth in the way that he did? He did not come from the sky in all the fullness of, de- of his deity. Uh, he did not come from below in the greatness of, uh, of all hu- human power and might. But through miraculous conception in woman, through water, born in a manger, in small human flesh, in a little town called Nazareth, the Savior Jesus Christ came forth. Look at the humility of our God. 
And then maybe you will begin to understand a little bit more about the plan of baptism and God's miraculous, wonderful plan of salvation. In a very similar way, by the way, God's plan to save us through baptism not only connects us to the humble beginnings of our own birth or the Savior's birth, but it also connects us to the humble conclusion of our own death and especially our Savior's death. Later, Paul will pen a letter to the Church of Christ in Rome, and he will remind them that just as we were baptized into Christ Jesus, we were also baptized into his death. And just as we were baptized into his death, so too we rose up as he did out of that watery grave of baptism to walk in newness of life. Very important to read Romans chapter 6. Verses 1 through 4, perhaps the one scripture in the New Testament that gives us really the closest and greatest insight to the plan, the design that is of baptism, and why it is such an essential part of our salvation. The first step, in fact. Again, this might be just a small fraction of God's wisdom and design, but no matter the purpose, no matter the cause, God has chosen the waters of baptism as the means by which he cleanses man from his sins. That is not, of course, to say that uh, God's grace or our faith, our trust in him, must not be preceded by our baptism. Absolutely, it must. And we believe in the grace of God. We believe in the necessity of a believer's baptism. But at the end of the day, it is essential and it is something we must do. Let's return to that question then. Must I be baptized to be saved? In some sense, we've already answered that. In fact, just now, I suppose, we we did answer that question. But I realize that Paul, again, never really asked that question, nor did anyone in Scripture ever ask that question, according to my knowledge. God said to do it. Why would a man choose not to do it? And nevertheless, here we are, and the question is still being asked in the curious minds of the 21st century people. Perhaps we can draw our attention back once more to the scene near Damascus, before Paul's baptism. And there we find that Paul had asked in that second question, Lord, what do you want me to do? The Lord interestingly responded to Paul and said, Go into the city and you will be told what you must do. In Acts 22, verse 10, the Lord says what you are appointed to do, designated, that is, determined, devoted to do. And with these words in mind, it is no wonder that Paul never questioned the Lord, must I do this? It is no wonder that the Lord's messenger quickly hastened Paul and said, now why are you waiting? Baptism is not a question of why or must I, but when. 